People tend to think that computer science is all about the practical work. Initially, I had the same thought until I had the opportunity to dive deeper into the subject at university. This is when I discovered there's more to computer science than just practicals and algorithms and solving problems. There's a lot of philosophy in certain areas, and one of those areas is artificial intelligence. And I was flabbergasted when I first got introduced into the idea of AI philosophy. People have different beliefs when it comes to AI systems. Some people believe that it will serve humanity and move humanity towards the better, while others think that it's going to have the opposite effect. And it's, uh, it is going to negatively affect us. And some even go to the extreme case where they think that in the event where people are able to build machines that think, feel, behave, and act like humans, that those machines will turn against humanity. Well, what is my opinion on the matter? Let's say at the moment I don't have any. I am constantly going back and forth on whether uh, artificially intelligent systems are going to help us or not. There are many movies that show us both ends of the spectrum. And there are debates as well that challenge both of these ideas. How's the world going to turn out? I have absolutely no clue. Uh, however, it would be nice to hear what other people have to say about this subject. And who better to tell us more about AI and the future of AI and discuss the philosophy of AI with the, someone who is a cognitive scientist and a data scientist that have dabbled in the area of artificial intelligence over the years. Well, before we get this conversation started, I think you know what time it is. So, hey, Kuvent, how's it going? It's good. It's good. It's We're a bit, approaching. It's a bit late here, yeah. Yeah, what time is it? Uh, 11.30. Oh, wow. Is that Thursday? I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. so not yet. Not not yet close to the weekend. We're, you're getting yeah, closer, I'm... getting closer. I know. By the <laughs> time we're done, it'll be the weekend. <laughs> Wait, so you finish, do you finish on Fridays or Thursdays? I mean, I kind of work whenever, so. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's easy schedule. Yeah, the, so the whole it, week is is a work week. Um, so uh, if if I'm correct, you work as a scientist or a researcher at the University of California. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, what is your field of interest, if I may ask? Uh, so I'm primarily interested in neuroscience. Um, but I'm also interested in artificial intelligence and kind of the, the relationship between neuroscience and artificial intelligence. So um, yeah, the, the main brunt of my work is, is recording neural data in the lab, but, but I use artificial intelligence to make sense of that data. And then we also use insights from what we learn from the brain to try and build better AI. So what field did you get in first? Did you study neurology and then did you 
move or get into the field of data science and artificial intelligence, or was it the other way around? Yeah, um, I'd say it's probably a, a positive feedback loop between the two. Um, I certainly, I had always been interested in, you know, hacking around with computers and tech, but I had also always been interested in just reading about the brain, right? I mean, it, it was just, even since I was a kid, it just really fascinated me that this one little hunk of cells and fat controlled not only our whole body, but us and like who we were as people and their hopes and dreams and down to like the little quirks of, you know, some people not liking tomatoes, but they like ketchup. Yeah, no, it's definitely, I'm happy that you found your passion at a very young age. It's not an easy thing, to be honest. Like there are way too many options. Uh, I struggled with, you know, finding the thing that I'm interested in. I, I think I only recently found out what I'm interested in. Not recently, but like when I first decided what I wanted to study at university. You know, it yeah, took me 12 yeah. years, it took me 16 years to <laughs> understand the world and <laughs> know what I want and what I like and what I don't like. Um, what did you settle on? I ended up studying computer science at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. Oh, uh, awesome. So yeah, I did get a little bit of experience in artificial intelligence, which is why like, I'm excited about this episode. Yeah. Yeah, that'll be yes. fun. I mean, yeah, I mean, you never, I don't think, I, I think, I mean, I'm certainly dabble in a lot of other fields and a lot of other things. Um, but I think it's easy when you, when you study like something like computer science or something like neuroscience where like, especially computer science, for instance, where it's, it's kind of a tool that you can apply to any domain. So you could be interested in finance and write, you know, quantitative algorithms to trade or you could be interested in music and write programs to to play music you know and everything yeah. in between definitely a powerful like a very powerful skill to have and a very useful one um but you know the thing about like computer science especially when i got into the field of artificial intelligence i was i was really interested in like i was surprised to be honest that there is a lot of philosophy that goes behind artificial intelligence and I was uh, flabbergasted by the amount of information that we were receiving, the amount of debate that goes on in, into the topic. Um, but I guess like the best way to start this is by asking you, if you know the answer, of course, is what is the definition of intelligence? Yeah, so I, I, get, I get asked this question quite a bit and it's, it's one of those things that I think a, a, a thousand scholars would debate, it. you know, actually, how do you define this thing or even can you define it? And I think just to qualify my answer, there's a lot of words in, in all the, the cognitive sciences and the brain sciences that I think we, we like intuitively know what they mean. But when you actually try and pin down like a, a set of criteria, it, it starts to muddy it up. Um, which is evidenced by for like intelligence, like all the, the IQ tests where at one point we're like, oh yeah, we can quantify intelligence with a, a simple metric, a simple number, and then, then we'll know if it's smart. And then very quickly we found out that, yeah, this, this probably isn't the best idea. And so then out comes multiple intelligences and, and whatever. And I think, 
the 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 like dictionary definition of intelligence is uh, the ability to apply skills and knowledge um, or the ability to learn and apply skills and knowledge um, but even in that you you quickly start getting into the philosophical like epistemological arguments of you know what is knowledge um, so anyway yeah I, I i i don't think it's necessarily the right question <laughs> so not to answer your question with a with a big tangent um but i think we we in general just need to be careful about what we mean when when we use those type of type of words yeah because when we build artificially intelligent systems we we, we usually say oh this system is smart but what what is what do we mean by smart right it's a it's a broad term it differs between people people can be smart in certain areas other people can be more creative and um, excel in different fields um, so yeah, I was like this question was always on my mind like what makes something smart is it the yeah. ability to outperform others in the specific area or like is it someone who or something that excels in all areas uh, but I yeah mean, to uh, me I think mm. I, I really think that the whole pursuit of of building artificial intelligence is kind of our our intrinsic way of actually finding that definition because if you think about it there's only one thing on this planet that is actually intelligent and that that would be us not to be you know hubristic for humanity but i think it goes without saying we we've, we've proven ourselves to be pretty intelligent and so I, I don't think we really know what that, that fully means. And I think oftentimes when, when we think we know what it means, we, we end up either finding out that we weren't necessarily as close as we were. Um, but I think the, the, just the very pursuit of trying to emulate intelligence and building it has revealed far more about intelligence than, than most other endeavors that we have. And my favorite example, just just very briefly, is like chess. For a long time, people thought if you could build a machine to play chess, that would be an intelligent machine. Like all the logic and all the reasoning, all of that that goes into play chess. And then we did it. And it was like a magic trick, right? It's like when you first see a magic trick, you, you, you're amazed and you're kind of like, wow, yeah. how did that happen? That's awesome. And then the second someone tells you how they do it, then you're like, oh, yeah, you know, mm. that's not. That's not really that impressive. When someone says you beat chess just by, you know, brute, brute force search with a few heuristics through every possible state. Like, okay, yeah, chess isn't that impressive. So let's move the goalpost to a new game or a new task or a new challenge. Um, and then the question is, if, if you keep doing that and you keep giving AI more and more challenges and you say, oh, you know, protein folding, that must be intelligent, right? And then it doesn't. And you're like, eh, you know, that's not really what we mean. It still can't, you know, walk or chew gum or know the difference between a cat and dog and do all these things at once. But once we do that, would, will we still move the goalpost? So, I don't know. Yeah, that's, that's actually a very, like, interesting point that you pointed out. Uh, it's the fact that, you know, we have systems that can do something really, really well, but it's only that one specific thing. And as soon as you take it out of, or like, as soon as you introduce something a little bit in you, 
something that it's not used to, it will go crazy. It, it won't be as intelligent anymore. And I was actually reading about it. And so let's take, yeah, let's take chess for an example. Um, given a standard chessboard, an AI system could be the top player. And I think this is what we currently have. We have AI systems that can play uh, standard chess really, really well. And they mm -hmm. can be any, they can be the top chess players. Give that same system, the same rules, same standards, but like increase the amount of uh, tiles you have, let's say a nine by nine board, it will not perform like not nearly as close as it does with a standard board. So like that, that just shows that the current systems that we have can't take what it learned and apply it to new contexts. Um, so yeah, that, that's, I guess, is that the distinction between something that is generally intelligent and something that is intelligent in one specific area. Um, yeah, yeah, these so narrow AI or savant AI is is kind of the state state of the art right now of how most systems are built. So you just you pick one task and you just try and get to superhuman whatever the best human person is at that task you, you try and surpass that with some machine um, but it seems like to do so you you really focus on the specifics of the task and so there's a concept in ai called um, robustness so that's like when you take take a certain task and you add like slight perturbations to it so like say uh image classification task and then you just you know flip the image or you obscure the image or you um, change a few pixels or change the colors um, could you still I mean a human could easily tell a cat in all of those situations but early image classifiers kind of struggled I mean the second you flip the image it would it would fall apart until you kind of built in little hacks to get around that yeah, so I guess, so if we want to build a system that is intelligent in all areas, so something that is similar to humans, we probably need to understand the way the human brain works, right? Um, so I guess my question is, how much do we understand of the brain? And are the current technologies that we have allowing us to like dive deeper or maybe get more insight into how how the brain works and how things are wired. Yeah, so so the, the first part where it's necessary to know how the brain works to build good AI, I, I don't think that that's fundamentally true. Mm. Um, I mean, certainly, in a, I certainly think knowing about the brain will help. And there's a lot of evidence that, that says it does help. Um, but there's a long history of computer science and artificial intelligence algorithms to solve tasks that 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 humans might might solve that use completely different mechanisms um so like the good old-fashioned ai approaches um back in like you know late 80s 90s in in a lot of cases they worked for a lot of tasks and i mean even some of the the deep neural networks nowadays that you know, very loosely inspired by the brain, um, still use very different mechanisms than than how a brain or at least a, a group of biological neurons might solve a task. 
Um, so I don't think I don't think it's a necessity, um, mm. but I think it's certainly sufficient, and I think it it'll kind of narrow down the scope um, for a lot of problems, or at the very least, give us inspiration. And I think no one has proved that better, um, and really tried to to drive that point home than um, a lot of the recent work that DeepMind's doing. Um, and, and they're very neuroscience inspired. Um, they hire a lot of neuroscience PhDs. The founder has a PhD in neuroscience, did research in neuroscience before he went to AI. Um, and, and by borrowing a lot of neuroscience concepts um, and implementing them at, at varying levels of biological plausibility, they have really kind of pushed the state of the art in a lot of ways. And, to, and they've even written papers on this to say that like this is the way that we think AI should be built, that we should really try and get as close as we can to the brain, um, or at least get to a level where we can extract um, the, the, the important parts about how the brain works. Um, you don't need to necessarily implement every little aspect of the brain, but there are some things that, you know, the brain does well. It's had a, a lot longer of a head start on, on a lot of these problems than some of our, our computers have. So did anyone ever try to simulate uh, or emulate, sorry, uh, the human brain or like brain activities? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so in the, I think of it as like the spectrum of, I don't know what we want to call it, spectrum of cognitive modeling. Um, we're on, say, like the, the x-axis you have ranging from very, very biologically plausible, like you're trying to simulate exactly how the brain works. Um, and on the other end, it's, we don't care how this thing works. We just want it to solve the task. Um, and there's researchers at every kind of area along that axis. And it, it kind of depends on what your goals are. So like a, a, a standard, you know, say like 10 years ago, if you called yourself an artificial intelligence researcher, you might know a little bit about how the brain works, but you're just Im implementing algorithms. You're doing pre-search, you're doing, you know, graph search, you're doing maybe symbolic logic, you know, these things that are very, very far in a lot of cases from how um, a brain might solve the task. And on the far, 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 far other end of the spectrum is um, mostly neuroscientists. And these are people who will implement like dynamical systems, big, huge equations for every little aspect of how each neuron works down to maybe even the, the ion channels embedded in the neuron or the, the like electrical activity that each neuron is doing. And they'll code up, you know, really, really big complex models of um, every little aspect of a neuron to the point where like, I think the most complex ones where each, each neuron is so complex in these simulations and they have thousands um, that it's the equivalent of like one laptop's worth of computing power. That's like how detailed that, that each neuron is being um, simulated. Um, and, then, and then in between that, you have everything else. You have you know the deep neural networks as we know them now, you have maybe cognitive modeling and these things. Um, and the, the best way I can kind of summarize it is we all know like weather models so we all remember the like weather cycle that we had in you know primary school where the water in the ocean evaporates and then it 
gets warmed up by the sun and goes to the clouds and then condenses and, and then it rains, right? Really simple. You can draw it on the back of a napkin. Everyone understands that. On the far other end of the weather modeling spectrum, you have supercomputers that are measuring thousands and thousands of temperature data points and they're using really complex dynamical systems of like heat exchange over different types of topology in the air and they're using fluid dynamics and like the most cutting edge of all of physics and weather science are being put in these huge supercomputers um, to predict the weather and have really really accurate weather predictions that get shipped off and you get a notification on your phone like yeah there's going to be 90 percent chance of rain they both kind of have i don't know their uses um it's a lot easier to understand that really simple weather model that we all learned in in primary school you can you can write it down you can tell it to a lot of people you can use it for a lot of tasks and a lot of just thought experiments of you know how changing these really simple equations might might change things um but on the other end the really super huge complex one while not necessarily the most intuitive and not useful for a lot of other areas of you know maybe theory or science is really good at prediction and really good at predicting the weather um, and that's kind of what its goal is and and modeling the brain is, is basically the same way if 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 that makes sense um there's kind of that spectrum of complexity there yeah i see i got a little bit confused to be honest but uh no no I it's think, not, no worries. <laughs> i think i get like the gist of it but i did pay attention to one thing that you said that basically simulating one let's say a single neuron activity might be a computer's worth of like computing power so that basically means not even a supercomputer would be able would be able to uh, emulate the human brain, or at least if it did, it's gonna take it. I'm just giving like random numbers: forty five minutes for one second of the human brain activity. That's insane. That's like we're not even yeah. like close. <laughs> yeah. So that I think the most complex project there, I think it's called the Blue Brain Project. I don't think anyone has beat them yet. Um, but they kind of have the award. I think it's a European project. They kind of have the award for most complex neural model. And, it, and again, this is just a small chunk of, say, like a mouse's brain that they're trying to emulate. Um, it's not even the whole brain yet. But their their goal is to really just kind of prove this is what it would take. And these are kind of, you know, the infrastructure that we'll need to build if we want to go that route of, simulating neural circuits at this level of complexity um, but then i think there's a really deep philosophical question there of at what level do you really need to simulate the brain or or, or what what are the aspects of the brain that we we really think are important for cognition um, or whatever the goal is that you're trying to to do with with your simulation, right? Because you certainly don't need absolutely everything um, with any model. Um, sure, you might lose a little bit of accuracy, but what you're really going for with any type of model is, you know, the the main gist, the the ninety percent um, accuracy, and then maybe you can add a few other things to bump that up a little bit more. 
Um, so do we need to, in the case of modeling an entire brain, model, you know, every atom in a neuron and how the atoms are interacting in the neuron or how every protein in the cell is interacting um, to, to get at cognition. And some people might argue, yeah, you, you need that level of, of depth and complexity. And a lot of other people would say, no, you really don't need, you don't need to, to really worry about all that other biological stuff um, to get at cognition. All you really need is um, whether or not the neuron is active and how it communicates and those dynamics. Um, and a lot of the biology could be ignored. I kind of fall but somewhere in the middle. I was gonna say like maybe I personally wouldn't be able to give like a specific answer until I have an understanding of whether all these atoms and the way they interact with one another do affect whether the neuron is on or off or whether it like channels the electrical impulses or not during the synapses. Like I, I wouldn't yeah. be able to give an answer. <laughs> but I mean that's like that's a deep that's a deep modeling question and, and almost like a, a, a philosophical physics question right because hmm. you could almost say that if you wanted a, a perfect model of the brain you would have to simulate everything in the entire world because you know by like chaos theory um if somebody you know doesn't pay their bill on one day somewhere in I don't know, Yugoslavia or, or wherever, Let's pick your favorite place and someone didn't pay their bill and then they lost their house and they didn't work and then they couldn't do their job and then trade was impacted. And then because trade was impacted, you couldn't get your food that day. And so then on the other side of the war, you couldn't eat the right food. Um, and so then that means you chose a different type of food that maybe had more caffeine and then you ate the caffeine, the caffeine had higher um, you know, caffeine content than you were used to, that affected how your brain worked. And so you would need to model every single thing to, to capture that one little instance. And that seems ridiculous, um, I think, to most people that you would have to model the entire world to understand how the brain would work. Um, but you might need to, to model some of it. Um, you might need to, to model maybe your immediate surroundings. Um, so maybe the environment is important. Um, to dictate how the brain works. Maybe you're, you don't just need to simulate the neurons, you need to simulate, you know, other organs in the body that could be, be affecting how those neurons function. Um, and so that's really kind of the, the decisions that are left to the, the modelers um, of, of which, which aspects are important to my specific goal of what I want this model to, to achieve. Um, or which things can I kind of just kick out and not have to worry about too much. So what I've noticed like throughout our conversation so far is the idea of, you know, everything is about modeling in order to get an artificially intelligent system. It's about modeling or creating models for a specific task, or let's say creating multiple models in the scenario, or like in the event where we want the system to be able to cope with multiple external stimuli. Um, so like, Eventually, all models, they boil down to algorithms. And what are algorithms? They're basically a series of instructions that tell the computer on how to solve a problem, right? Um, mm -hmm. So yeah. that brings me to a very interesting, like, I'd say, discussion of whether AI machines will be able in the future 
to think and to feel and to act and behave as humans. And that whenever I ask myself that question, I always think about the Chinese room argument, uh, mm-hmm. which, which yeah. I, I kind of like, I kind of understand it, but like, would it be okay for you to like, uh, sorry, uh, for you to explain that to me and maybe tell me what you think about it? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so if we take, take our time machine back before computers existed, there was a guy really, really famous. Almost every computer scientist knows him. His name's Alan Turing. Mm-hmm. Turing comes up with, and again, this is before computers existed. Um, so what were computers in, in those days? They were typically women who just did hand calculations. Um, or they use slide rules or or little books of, of calculation to help them do it. But they were, I mean, they're effectively mathematicians and they're brilliant women who did all the computation of pretty much every global economy's um, needs. But this was around the time where some mathematicians, particularly Alan Turing and some others, were, were starting to think of, well, you know, this whole math thing, what if we built a machine to do it? Um, And then he took it one step further and he said, well, not only could we build a machine to do math, but if this thing works, we could probably build this machine to do any problem that we could explicitly define. Um, So that's Turing's famous contribution. And then he goes even one step further and he's like, well, you know what, if we can make this thing do any task, then we might be able to build something that's, as we said earlier, intelligent. And so then he Mm -hmm. thought, well, you know, if it's intelligent, how might I test if this thing is really, you know, up to snuff, if it's as really smart as, as we think it is? And he just came up with a really simple thought experiment, you know, to, to test that. That was his Turing test. And the Chinese room is a direct counter-argument to Turing's idea. So, so Turing thought the easiest way to find out if a computer was smart was I take that computer, I program it to talk to me, because you can program to do any any task. Or in this case, it's a Turing machine, but we can just call it a computer for now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I program it to talk, and I would sit down, and I wouldn't know as I'm communicating, maybe I'm passing messages or typing in a terminal or something. Um, and I would have to guess based on the conversation I'm having, and I could ask it anything I wanted. Is I could be as clever as I wanted to get, try and trip it up, what have you. Um, and based on our conversation, I would just have to answer one question, and that is, do I think I'm talking to a human or do I think I'm talking to a computer? Hmm. Okay. And if, yeah, and if that trips you up, and if you say it's a human and it's a computer, then you know, by Turing's quick and dirty heuristic, you'd say, yeah, I'd call that thing, I'd call that intelligent. Okay. So that, that makes sense. Yeah. I'd say. So, you know, a a while later, a philosopher called Searle comes around and he's all about in philosophy, it's called causal powers. He thinks that consciousness has a little more oomph to it than, than what what computers can do and his definition of causal powers is kind of flaky so we don't really need to get into it but his his attack on the chinese room is kind of interesting because he says hold on turing you know talking retrospectively they, they weren't alive at the same time but he says 
Now, now, Turing, you you think that if if I'm talking to this computer and I can't tell if it's a human or a computer, that this computer is intelligent and it has some sort of knowledge or agency or dare I say consciousness to it. That's that's your definition. But Turing said, or sorry, Searle said, I could envision this room and say we're doing the Turing test and you're passing messages beneath the door of this room, similar to how, you know, in the Turing test, you would just type in the computer and pass messages between you and, and the computer. Mm -hmm. And Searle says, even though I don't know Chinese and you're giving me Chinese symbols, I could go into this room and have a dictionary or even the lookup table of every single, you know, you give me one sentence in Chinese, I look that up in this book, I find a proper response in the book, and then I pass that under the door, and you don't know if I know Chinese or not, or if I'm just, you know, looking in the book um, and cheating, basically. Okay. And so Searle's whole argument rests on the fact that if if a computer is, if everything is just programmed in this computer, all the knowledge is, is explicitly kind of defined in these logical rules, um, then the computer doesn't necessarily know what it's doing. It's just following, as we said earlier, this algorithm. It just, it has this deterministic, no matter what sentence you give it, it'll have some answer um, and whether or not it knows what it's doing or not is kind of um, irrelevant of a question for the computer. Does that does that kind of make sense? I can I can try and explain. No, I I I do get it. No, so you're basically saying that because we're we're basically telling that person inside the room on how to operate, that doesn't mean that person has a level of understanding of the Chinese language. Exactly. So, yeah. Yeah. So Searle, was it? He was yeah, tackling Searle. Yeah. Okay. He was tackling the idea of understanding and he said deep under. So basically what he's saying is deep understanding is something far greater that we cannot actually simulate or imitate in a computer. Yeah. And funny enough in that paper, he never actually gives you a, a satisfactory definition of understanding. Um, he does a lot to, to challenge a lot of the critiques of the idea in, in his famous Chinese room paper. Um, but he never really goes all the way and, and provides his view of, of what understanding would be. Like I said, he usually just kind of hand waves it over and calls it causal powers, which he has his own definition for, but even still, it's not, it's not really that, that worked out. And a lot of people debated, um, sense over you know what he kind of meant when he said that um and yeah and generally i kind of fell out of out of touch with a lot of contemporary philosophy on that um but i think it, it, it's worthwhile to think about because it is it is a deep question of if you just memorize something does that mean that you know it um if you know you go and you just memorize a bunch of, let's say, a language that you don't know and you just memorize a bunch of sentences and you really don't know what you're saying, but you could fool someone that you're talking to. Does that mean that you know the language? Um, maybe. I mean, I, I think it's a good question to, to think about and, and discuss. But I think 
more broadly, I, I think it kind of misses the main brunt of, of what we really should be talking about when it comes to that sort of thing. And what's really funny is I sometimes think that we as humans don't even understand what language is. Because the way I think about it is that languages, they boil down to what is known as phenoms. And this is something you take at natural language processing. Phenoms are essentially just voices and a bunch of voices. They make up a word when you mix words together or, or sorry, concatenate them. You make up sentences. And when you join different sentences, you make up paragraphs and so on. And when it comes to learning a new language, I think we humans memorize the vocabulary. We memorize the, uh, the rules, the grammar of that language. And over time and with practice, uh, those rules, regulations, restrictions, vocabulary, etc., they become part of our muscle memory that we do not really think about it when we're applying it. Now, does that really mean that we've reached a level of understanding or did we just memorize? Are, are we good at understanding stuff or are we just good at memorizing? Now, one thing I'll give to humans is the ability to apply things out of context, which is something that computers have proven not to be yet capable of. But yeah, I constantly think about these things and over, you know, over time, as I read more and as I go through more articles and as I start thinking about these things over and over again, <laughs> I stop and ask myself, is it true? Do we as humans reach that level of understanding? I think in your head, you're, you're encompassing what I think the entire history of cognitive sciences has kind of been going through. Um, which is fine. I mean, I, th I think that's that's the only way that that will really get get at truth is to constantly, you know, or think think we have a good answer and then challenge it and find out that it's wrong until we can't we can't disprove it anymore. Um, I mean, uh, what you were saying earlier about feedback being important, I think for a lot of reinforcement learning people, they would they would definitely agree. So they kind of see a world through. You know, everything we do gets constant feedback and we either get positive or negative reward through that. And based on those reward signals, that will kind of modulate um, not only our actions, but but our learning, too, and what things we learn, what we pay attention to. Um, and I think the neuroscience behind that is, is pretty, pretty, pretty strong. There's a lot of good evidence that um, reinforcement learning is one of the, the big principles of how the brain works. Um, but I don't think it's the only one. I, I, I think there's more to it than, than just that story. So back to the Chinese room argument. So again, do you think that computers can understand or will be able to understand in the future? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those are very different questions. Um, I, I certainly think I don't think there's anything prohibiting us from building a system that that could understand the world equal to or better than than we can. Um, I, I don't think that there's any you know 
fundamental principle that anyone has proven. Um, a lot of people have said a lot of things and have zero to no evidence to support against, against that claim. Um, and really the biggest argument against it right now is we haven't proven it yet. Um, but we haven't proven that we can't do it yet. So, you know, the, there's still a lot of work to be done. Um, so I, I think it's, I think it, in principle, it's possible. I don't think anything we have right now, you know, regardless if you've seen the news of, of a lot of Google, a, a Google employee who thinks that some of their language models are sentient. Um, I, I don't think we're there yet. Um, but I, again, like I said, I, I don't think there's anything fundamentally prohibiting us from from building a, a system like that. But are you scared if, so let's say we were able to build such a system, are you with or against having a generally smart AI? Oh, I'm totally for it. I, yeah, I, I think almost every fear that we have is, you know, is derived from movies. And I mean, I think there's a, I think it's, it's certainly reasonable to be careful about how we do it. Um, mm. More so just for how people end up using it than what it would do on its own, I would say. Um, there are some, you know, there's, there's this famous argument about a paperclip maximizer where, um, if a machine was that intelligent, even if it didn't have, you know, bad intentions itself, you just gave it a silly task, like collect as many paper clips as you can. It would, if it was that intelligent and that smart and that, you know, omniscient, it would destroy the earth to keep maximizing paper clips because the only thing it cares about is jumping up the number of, of paper clips. So it would kill all the humans so it could like reuse the atoms in their bodies to make more paper clips, right? It's really silly, but you know, it's a published argument by Nick Bostrom. Um, but I, I think there's some truth in that, that, that depending, especially now, I think we, we kind of have seen kind of echoes of that with um, say like social media algorithms who where the, the the only goal usually of a lot of earlier social media algorithms was just maximize the amount of time someone spends on our platform and maximize ad revenue however you can and we started seeing a lot of negative effects from that that you know some people are getting addicted to social media you start seeing polarization of where it starts serving you more and more extreme content because that kind of triggers you to keep wanting to watch more and more and so you end up you know you're watching a music video and then you end up on like some crazy conspiracy theory um, and you're like how did I get here and it was all it was all just recommended videos just kind of funneling you down this road um, because it you know maximizes time on the platform the more time you spend on the platform the more ads you watch the more ads you watch the more money they make um so, so I think, you know, the, the paperclip maximizer seems crazy, um, but I think we were seeing echoes of that with, you know, algorithms that are still relatively stupid, um, but they, they still can drastically change a lot of, you know, how society is working and human behavior and those sorts of things. I'm more worried about that, I would say, than, you know, how rising up or Skynet rising up or pick your favorite movie AI like 
the way I think about it is if we have systems that behave like humans and if they are able to emulate emotions just like humans can then wouldn't that system have the same thoughts that a human would have at any given state and would it not react the same way as a human would in that state so if, if i were to give an example an ai lives and interacts with humans humans if they get angry let's say someone behaves recklessly Mm-hmm. Wouldn't that AI learn from that behavior by observing and then would or might um, replicate those behaviors? And so that's the way I think about it. Like another another funny story, like someone told me, I think we took that in a lecture once. It's if you have an AI, an AI can drive really, really well. But once it learns and observes how other people drive, it would start driving crazily or might start driving crazily and like recklessly. Uh, so I think that's, that's like some of the fears that people have when it comes to artificially intelligent machines and um, machines that act as humans. Yeah, but I think on the, on the driver example, it really would depend on, on what, you're, how, what, what the, the, the signal is that, that you're training that, that agent on or the car on. Um, I mean, right now, the, the, the biggest number one thing you do as a driverless car AI engineer is you program in, do everything you can do to not crash. Um, try not to hit anything in your environment, whether it's a car, a tree, a pedestrian, a fire truck, which Tesla had some problems with. Um, <laughs> that's kind of your main, main learning signal. And so it, it might be okay. Um, and I think driverless cars will generally be fine once we once we kind of get some of the the bugs worked out. And I think it'll drastically improve road conditions when we do because it'll open up a whole world of opportunities. Um, but I, I liked what you said earlier about you know we build these AIs to be smarter and smarter, and at some point we just kind of realize aren't we just you know building more humans? Um, and there's a really good example I like of there's this Russian, uh, so a lot of people in Russia, they wanted foxes um, as pets, but foxes, wild foxes don't make the best pets in the world. Mm. Um, You know, they're wild animals. They, you know, know, they tear up the house and they bite and they get, you know, they don't mind. And so the, the, this Russian fox breeder started trying to domesticate foxes and breed foxes to be, you know, a better pet. And after a few generations, it worked. And, and they actually have them now, domesticated foxes. You can buy them in Russia. Um, but interestingly, what they found was the more and more like amenable you had for, for a fox as a pet. So like the less likely it would to, you know, try and fight you, the more friendly it was, the more it liked you. Um, they found out that foxes just started acting more and more like dogs. To the point oh, where okay. it, it, it was so extreme how like dog-like they became that even their ears, so foxes usually have like sharp pointy ears that stick straight up, Direct. they started to have floppier and floppier ears, um, kind of like domesticated dogs. Um, and 
you know, people have made the same the same point with monkeys, where you know people have looked for like monkey genetics of intelligence or like monkey genetics for language, um, or can you train a monkey to learn language? And someone just kind of stepped back and said, you know what? If we change these genes to make monkeys, you know, have the type of jaw structure to talk or upright bone structure to walk or, you know, a different, a bigger brain, we're just making monkeys more human-like. We're not really doing anything new when it comes to intelligence. We're just kind of making something closer and closer to us. And so all said, I think you're absolutely right. I think a lot of things with AI is just, you know, can we build a computer who just acts more like us? And at some point we might realize like, hey, we just pretty much duplicated a human. Maybe that's what it takes to, to get to, to that level of intelligence. Maybe there is something really special about us. Or, you know, maybe not. Maybe there is a kind of a, another way to get to really smart intelligence that we haven't even thought of. Um, I think that's also a possibility. Well, I guess when we, I guess we tapped a little bit into the idea of ethics, right? To the, the concepts yeah. of what is ethical and what is not ethical when we talk about building uh, machines that have to take decisions. You, you yourself said that the programmers would have to put the human's concern first and actually code that into the machine, um, such as, you know, self-driving cars. They need to protect humans at all costs. Um, so I get the idea of ethics, when it comes to ethics, how will we be able to generate a standard a code of ethics that we can uh, insert into those programs? Because like, Keep in mind, we do have difference in culture and we have those differences do, they do affect what we as humans consider ethical and what we do not consider ethical. I mean, I know there are things that are shared, but when it comes to the small things, I guess it's, this is where it gets a little bit tricky. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's certainly worthwhile to be as proactive as we can. And, and try and anticipate what these challenges are. And certainly there are, uh, people are, like there's ethics boards, there's people who spend their whole careers on you know, AI ethics, AI philosophy, um, law and AI, um, especially now with driverless cars starting to be big. I guarantee you there's hundreds, if not more lawyers around the world who are, are thinking about kind of these challenges. What does it mean if, you know, you bought the driverless car, but the car, you know, God forbid, hits a pedestrian. Who's liable? Are you liable as the purchaser of the car? Is the company liable as the, the developer of the algorithm? Um, and I think we're working on those, those things now. Uh, I think the issue is that a lot of ethics is, is as much as we would like, you know, law and ethics to be proactive and be absolute, I think the truth of it is by by the examples that we see, a lot of it is is retroactive, um, where you know we push the boundaries until something breaks or again, unfortunately, someone gets hurt, or you know there's enough of a problem that we we really need to institute a policy. Um, 
and, and this isn't just AI. This is almost every domain. I mean, back when like the assembly line was was first put together, factory work, um, there weren't a lot of rules governing you know labor laws and these things until there were you know factory fires or um, people being worked too long or, or these sorts of issues, things that people might not have foreseen because it was it was novel. Um, so it really is going to be on the shoulder of of legislators and ethicists and lawyers and really ultimately just you know how moral do we want our developers to be and how much i mean when it comes down to it and you're writing the code are you going to put your foot down and say hey no i i i think this is going to be a problem or putting in that extra you know week or month and, and finding that urge to just roll it out and say, you know what, I'm going to test this just a little bit more because there might be an edge case there that, that we're not thinking of. Um, every developer knows about unit testing. You know, you, you always mm -hmm. try and catch every test. Yes. And find every case. But I mean, how do you unit test in the real world with a driverless car, right? I mean, that there's... Tesla, I think, is doing really good about like trying to even generate. So, so for example, in, in cases where you don't have a lot of training data because it's a, a one-off experience or it's a really rare event, um, or even if it's an impossible event, right? Like it's probably really rare if an elephant like ran into the street of New York. But <laughs> even if an elephant ran into the street of New York, you want your car to not hit that elephant. Um, so how do you, you know, train the algorithm to, to kind of know that the thing that the human would know implicitly, even though we've never seen that happen before. Um, we've never seen a ballerina riding an elephant, um, chasing a dragon um, in the middle of the ocean. But again, if you're a driverless car, you want to avoid colliding with that almost dreamlike situation. Yeah, I guess it's the same scenario what you mentioned is about hitting an elephant and not hitting an elephant i think we were given a similar situation at one of the lectures and i remember the lecturer saying you have a train and the train is going on a track there is there are two paths so the track diverges into two different paths on one path there is one person stuck on the other path there are five people stuck what would you do and then he asks us the question what would we tell the computer to do and it's one of those things that actually, I, I'm just, I'm always confused. I don't have an answer. As you can see, I'm stuttering, I'm, I'm speechless. Like, what would I do? And how would I code it into a computer? Uh, it's, it's, I don't know, I think ethics is just, uh, there's also like a difference between ethics and whether something is legal or not, right? And something might be legal, but at the same time, it's unethical. Another time. Yeah, we would, we would hope that they'd be one and the same, but you're right that the truth is that oftentimes these things do diverge. Well, I mean, it's even cultural too. I mean, I, I think you made a really good point earlier that, you know, one, as much as we think ethics and morals and even the law is, is universal, there, there are a lot of cultural differences into how people would interpret these situations and, and how that they would like their specific um, scenario to unfold. And so 
at what point do you, you know, allow there to be divergence between that or in what cases do you, do you not? I mean, these are really, really hard questions that, I mean, what you were talking about earlier, the trolley problem, that's like one of the oldest and longest running like utilitarianism arguments and, and thought experience. And, you know, an intern right out of college, just got your CS degree, you're ready to go out in the big bad world and write some Python code to make cars drive themselves. And you're getting hit with some of the deepest philosophical questions, you know, humanity has been pondering for, for years um, to the point where lives are at stake. Um, not, it's not always that dramatic, but in some cases, it, you know, it could be. Um, and so are we ready to, 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 do we have the sufficient, I would say, you know, moral prowess to, to deal with those kind of situations? You know, I asked my friend once, I posed that scenario on him. And do you know what he told me? He said he would do nothing and he would let destiny decide who the train uh, hits. Because he said like... Just a random number <laughs> generator. You know, if, if numpy random dot random is greater than 0.5, go left. Yeah, I guess. Random. Well, he said, just let the, uh, the world play, like, do what it's supposed to do. Let destiny work itself out because he thinks that's the way the world should be run. It's just by... Like, we don't need any external... Um, influence in certain situations and maybe and things no, would work out for answer. the better hmm? that is an yeah, answer in, in, in some you know some societies and some groups of people could be totally fine with that like if you couldn't come to a resolution if you had two groups of people arguing for either side and they had really good arguments but both groups really wanted driverless cars you know i'm not saying that i would think it at, but I'm saying it, it could be a, a possible solution to the problem is just everyone agrees that in a situation that's that ambiguous you just leave it up to chance and then no one's at fault um, I don't know how long that would last until somebody would again you know complain file a lawsuit or stop buying the cars or something more drastic um, but I think it's probably just as reasonable as a lot of other uh, potential answers that people would give, although although mine would be, why don't you just hit the brakes before you <laughs> before you go down the left or right road? Um, the brakes are an option, so you you might not have to go left or right. <laughs> True, <laughs> I actually never thought about this one. I've always <laughs> imagined the brakes wouldn't be working in those scenarios, so that's why you have those two options only. If the brakes aren't um, working, then that's a bigger problem. <laughs> but again, that's that's the same kind of problem a human would face. So that's not really an AI problem at that point, right? Like if you're yeah. You're driving down the correct. highway and your brakes are cut. That's, I think, I think legally that's on you because you were negligent. You'd have to prove that that it was either the manufacturer, or if you're watching a crime show, that your arch nemesis cut your brakes, um, and hope you have good insurance. But that's when the real world starts creeping into the thought experiment. <laughs> well, I guess like another thing you said, you know, leave it to chance, right? And when it comes to programming, randomization isn't actually random. That's what, what we get taught because it follows a certain pattern. And if you generate bit, mm -hmm. like large amount of numbers, then you would 
kind of noticed that pattern. So randomization isn't actually randomization. And that means things won't be happening by chance, but it would follow a certain pattern. So I guess, I don't know. Uh, yeah, see, that's another one is, of those, those. This is like, the thought process that we go that we seemingly simple lines of code that ends up being like a deep like what does it mean to be random or there's varying yes. levels of random my favorite one though uh, i don't know if you've ever heard of cloudflare they're that like dns they, they make sure that like when people do like dns attacks and they like send a lot of requests that your your website doesn't go down if people try and ddos you but they have this really good approach to randomness where they have this room in their their main office and it's just rows and rows of lava lamps and they have a, the, a camera or a webcam set up that's looking at these lava lamps and lava lamps are you know as far as we know a, a chaotic almost impossible to predict system and so if you have a hundred of them stacked up on the wall and you look at how the pixel values change of that image they use that to seed their randomness generator which i, I think is mostly for like you know, PR and proof of concept. But I, I think it's kind of a fun idea of, you know, a different way to make random numbers than, you know, how NumPy does it out of the box. I did not know that. So that's actually cool. It's worth I'm looking up. It's <laughs> just type in like Cloudflare lava lamp. And, I'm and writing this down at the moment. Yeah, it, it's pretty fun. It, it's cool to see. You know, like an intern had like a, a fun job doing that. Well, I mean, as an intern, I... I can definitely say that what I did wasn't that cool. Yeah. <laughs> but anyways, I guess like ethics is a big is a big concept. There are a lot of things we need to consider as humans. Yeah. There's a lot we need to discuss. Yeah. And you know, there's always the idea of whether this thing is acceptable or not, such as surveillance. A lot of people agree with the idea of surveillance. Others don't and think it's uh, an invasion of uh, privacy. Yeah. Um, I mean, so I think yeah, my, my gut feeling for a lot of this, at least as of now, especially when you get into the, the, the harder questions where there really isn't a, a right answer, is, you know, let's be as proactive as we can. Let's make them as safe as we possibly can. But at some point, we do need to innovate. And so at that point where maybe we're, there's still not really a right answer, at least be democratic about it. Because I think at least when we have as many voices as the systems will touch, voicing you know, their opinion, how comfortable they feel, giving their buy-in, um, I think that at least is a way better scenario than you know, a small group of developers somewhere saying, you know what, this is how we're going to do it. If you don't like it too bad, sue us later. Um, and so I think moving towards more of an open um, and, and having more voices involved in this process certainly will not hurt, um, especially when it comes to, to big, big societal questions that, that is going to start creeping up more and more when AI gets smarter and smarter. Um, I was, I was just thinking, sorry, I keep jumping between topics, just like, <laughs> no, I, I, I don't like it. just like about the first thing that pops into mind. And I was thinking if a program or like, if 
a computer had the ability to feel? And would it be ethical to unplug it if it goes crazy for any reason? <laughs> that's, that's one question that I had in mind. Um, There's, that's, again, that's, that's, a, that's the Google debate right now is one software developer at Google built this language model and he started talking to it and he personally felt that that it was sentient it, it met his you know personal definition of sentience because i mean at this point we really don't have you know a good enough framework to, to judge that um and at one point the algorithm said it was afraid of being turned off and that's why he went public because he's like hey i'm going to advocate on behalf of this computer and say you know I, I i don't think we should switch this thing off almost every other person and every other ai developer would disagree i would say with that as we are now but i think it's 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 the 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 first maybe premature but as ai gets smarter and smarter as it certainly will if it keeps going on its current trajectory more and more people are going to start feeling the same way as that software developer um and they're going to start saying, hey, this is starting to get, you know, I'm a little bit more uncomfortable with, with, with switching this off. I'm a little bit more uncomfortable with not assigning computers, sentient computers rights as we would, you know, a human or at the very least an animal, um, right? There's a lot of animals that have more rights. You get a lot more jail time by, by infringing mm -hmm. upon the rights of a lot of animals than you would some of these AI systems now. But, you know, maybe that'll change in the future. Certainly yeah. science fiction has, has entertained that idea. This is so. crazy. It's going to change the world as we know it and the way we in, as humans interact with one another. And, it already uh, has. I mean, the fact that we're talking right now, right? Without computers, this, this conversation never would have happened. I mean, and that's only what, like the internet 90s? 20 yeah. years maybe that is if correct that, to have that kind of bandwidth to or, or infrastructure to, to talk across the globe real time and share it with fewer i mean it's two decades it's recent so but like uh, it's the way okay i think when it comes to the way we, we are interacting now with one another is it's still a human interaction right we're using technology to enhance the way we communicate but what if that completely changes and we're using technology to communicate with that technology instead of bringing people closer together it might separate well, let me us. ask you do you know if i'm a human or if i'm an ai oh that's another philosophical question that's, <laughs> how well, do you know how do you know maybe maybe the, the google dev was right and, and they do have a <laughs> A sentient machine and i'm i'm advocating on behalf of them um well i think i think i'm human <laughs> if, if anyone's wondering i i um I'm, I'm gonna i i i last time i checked then <laughs> if they put me in that <laughs> if they put me under the test the turing test the first question i would ask that computer are you a computer and see what yeah. would, <laughs> what it would say uh but uh it's yeah. been nice 
talking to you it's uh, this field or this area of computer science is probably one of my favorite and i really like the philosophy behind ai and i'm really excited to see where this technology is going to be heading and oh yeah yeah there's amazing discussions and in in people who actually study this will have even better and deeper philosophical questions um than than someone like me who's more on the the neuro end um but yeah, it, it's absolutely fascinating. And it, it, like, like we were saying earlier, I think, I think it's these conversations as we, we develop AI that's really going to get at, you know, that fundamental question of what really is intelligence and what does it mean and, and how does it affect all of us? I'm looking forward to reading more of your publications and papers. And hopefully you would have more of these philosophical ones. I'm not uh, trying to influence you in any way. <laughs> you have really interesting ideas and I'm uh, really interested in knowing more about them. Um, yeah, thank you. I'd love to talk again sometime. Uh, but if people would like to reach out to you or maybe if, do you have any way or maybe social media links or accounts that you would like people to follow you on? Yeah, please, please reach out. Like we said, the internet was made for people talking to each other and um my website is kwcooper.xyz or kwcooper.com i think either of those will point to the same website um or you can just google keel and cooper i'm lucky that my name is unique enough that google indexes it pretty well um <laughs> or twitter uh at kw underscore cooper and you can see me well, I tweet my thoughts. <laughs> it's nice talking to you. Uh, it was awesome to meet you, man. And I hope we would get in touch soon. Yeah, please. Have a good night and have a great weekend. Have a good one. See you. That was the end for us, guys. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. I hope you've had a lot of fun listening to the theories and philosophies of AI. As you can see, it's a very confusing subject and different people have different opinions and beliefs and ideas and ideologies. But it would be really nice to know your opinion. And if you do have any, please either send me a direct message. If you do have my contact detail, if not, you can always, you're more than welcome to share your ideas. Um, you can tweet them and just use the hashtag, uh, hashtag THL underscore podcast. And please don't forget to follow us on Twitter. And our Twitter account is at THL underscore podcast. You can also send us emails if you want to either get involved in the podcast or if you'd like to be a, um, a guest. Or even if you just want to send us a message, you're more than welcome to do so. And our email address is thehilopodcast at gmail.com. Other than that, that's all I have for today. Till next time.